0: Welcome to episode 660 of the Fantastic Forecast, the world's greatest podcast. This is a podcast devoted solely to the adventures of the Fantastic Four. I'm Dave Elliott, and I have been exposed to cosmic rays. I'm your host, Dave Elliott. And the other day my mom told me she smoked and drank while pregnant with me. And sometimes when I'm waiting for my order at the deli, and they call out my number, I like to say... I am not a number. I am a free man. And yes, that is my club sandwich. Thank you very much. I'm Dave Elliott, and this year, I'm going to change the format of this podcast. It's going to be two to three hours a week of me talking about all the free stuff sent to me by the listeners. So come on, send me some free stuff. I'm Dave Elliott. Back in episode 265, I was secretly replaced by Folger's Instant Crystals. I'm David Elliott. And listen up, David Elliott! This one's for you! Oh, hey, that's me! And who wants to join my pillow fighting meetup group? Hi, welcome to Fantastic Forecast, the world's greatest podcast about the Fantastic Four. I'm Dave Elliott. And Herbie the Robot is my favorite member of the Fantastic Four. I'm Dave Elliott. And after I'm finally done with the Fantastic Forecast, I'm going to use all the money I've made to take a fabulous exotic trip around the world. Or maybe I'll go to Cleveland. Probably go to Cleveland. In every episode of the Fantastic Forecast, I talk about a different issue of the Fantastic Four, going from issue 1 all the way to issue 645. Today it's Fantastic Four. Hi, welcome to the Fantastic Forecast. 10th Anniversary Special, episode 660. I'm Dave Elliott. After 10 years, I expect a nice bonus in my paycheck. Today, the most recent issue of the Fantastic Four, plus an issue of Marvel 2-in-1, and from our extra bonus spin of the wheel, my ranking of the Fantastic Four replacement members. Up first, Fantastic Four, issue 660, aka Volume 6, number 25. There Shall Come a Reckoning by writer Dan Slot and artist R.B. Silva. So the first episode of this podcast was done on November 10th, 2010, and now today is November 10th, 2020, 10 years later exactly, and I'm still here. It's so exciting! It's weird going back and listening to those older episodes when I was putting together the clips uh, to start this episode. I was speaking so softly. I was like, hi, welcome to the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott, and I'm very sleepy. You know, there was a time in my life where I'd be working on this podcast every day when I was pumping out three episodes a week trying to get through all of them. Oh, what was I thinking? I much prefer only doing one a month now. So without further ado, here's the issue of the Fantastic Four for this month. So the story starts four hours from now, it says. Some alien guy's in a green force field in orbit over Earth. He's saying that he could easily destroy Earth, but he's being sent for a a menial task. Some other alien guy he's talking to that he calls his Helmsman, he says, yeah, sure you could, but just do what you're told. So he approaches Earth, and approaches New York City, and approaches, uh, you guessed it, Fantastic Four headquarters. I always say this, but putting their headquarters, which attracts all kinds of bad people into the middle of a densely, po- densely populated Manhattan, is a terrible thing and the Fantastic Four are clearly less interested in actually keeping people safe and more interested in making sure that people see them in action and getting the accolades that come with being superheroes. He asks if he can destroy the four life forms inside and the helmsman replies, don't bother, and the guy lands with a big crash on the ground, creating a huge crater and killing a good number of people I assume. We get a clear look at the creature, he's big and blue, bald. Orange eyes, wearing a black Speedo, rocky spikes from his arms and knees. He's an ugly dude. You know, those Speedos go way down too. Apparently, he got a Brazilian wax before coming to Earth. It looks like the four people in the building were killed. This group is the Fantastics, which is that replacement Fantastic Four that I had forke- completely forgotten about. There's 2D, Hope, Iceberg and Miss Fantastics. I think they're all dead. Not that I care. I really thought they would be more important when they were first introduced, but nope. Next up we see Nick Fury from The Ultimates. I'm always confused by this character. I guess he's like Nick Fury Jr. here. So this takes place now, or four hours earlier. Nick is sitting in a coffee shop. Sue comes in, all invisible and shit, and Nick tells her to pull up a chair. He mentions that she's late, and she says they were busy getting fitted for new uniforms. She sits down and Fury mentions that he has another solo mission for her. Last year in the Invisible Woman limited series, we learned that Sue has been making secret missions for S.H.I.E.L.D. ever since the Cold War? You know, I never thought in a million years that limited series would be referenced here in the main Fantastic Four book, but here it is. Nick Jr., I don't think of a big badass Samuel L. Jackson type character when I call him Nick Jr. Nick Jr. tells Sue there's been a series of break-ins at some of the most secure locations around the world. Giant holes, torn into buildings. They took a variety of items, new inventions, ancient relics, sensitive documents, Hillary's deleted emails, Republican dirt on Hunter Biden, Trump's p tape. It's all gone! All gone! Fury says that one thing these items had in common was they were being held inside, uh, inside stealth-shielded lockboxes. Fury says there's one more of these boxes in New York City, and he needs Sue to go to that box, turn it invisible, and tell Fury what's inside. Oh, and by the way, the lockbox the lock is located in the Latverian Embassy behind a picture of Doom's mom. So I'm going to take some guesses as to what's in Doom's lockbox. By the way, I read some, record some, read some, record some, so I haven't read the entire issue yet. Guess one. A copy of the newest issue of Playgirl magazine. That's finally coming back due to high demand from no one. Guess number two. A secret invention that will destroy the Fantastic Four. Guess number three. A copy of Doom's dream diary. Guess number four. A complete set of supervillain team-up, which he should throw in the fire, but can't bring himself to. And guess number five, uh, Donald Trump's tax returns. Who knows? Fury tells Sue it'll be a quick job. Your family will never notice that you're gone. And she replies, Nick, they never do. FF readers who did not read the Invisible Woman limited series must be like, what the hell are they talking about? Next, back at Fantastic Four headquarters, Valeria and Reed are working on some big tele- teleportation invention. We get a first look at the new Fantastic Four uniforms. So I guess this R.B. Silva guy is the new regular artist. New artist always means new uniforms. It's really not that different from previous designs. If it wasn't mentioned a couple times already, I probably would not have even noticed. Johnny's walking into Franklin's room and tells him he has his new uniform form. We see Franklin's room. And this is new. He's got rock star posters all over his walls. Franklin even has an electric guitar of his own. You know, I can appreciate that Dan Slott is trying to give Franklin a character, but this seems out of left field. Franklin says he's listening to stuff like Lila Cheney, Dazzler, Xtronic, you know, mutant music. Is that a category of music? LGBT isn't a category of music, so I don't know why mutant music would be a thing. This is a continuation of what we learned last issue, that Franklin is starting to explore his mutant side. Next we check in on Ben and Alicia putting their kids to bed, and boy I never thought I'd be saying that. It's Decree Boy and Scroll Girl, whose names I can't remember. Ben says they'll be starting fourth grade tomorrow, and the boy says, Intriguing. Everything here starts with four. The girl says she's been reading up on important information before starting school. Information about social cliques. She changes shape from a mean girl, to a nerd, to a jock. I don't know what social clique I was in when I was back in school. I was too stupid to be a nerd, too unathletic to be a jock. I guess I was a mean girl. The boy's idea of school is... He thinks he'll be entering an arena of death, where he'll, where he'll have to crush all resistance. Yeah, I think he's got the right idea. Alicia and Ben are starting to think that maybe they should homeschool the kids. Next we see Sue sneaking into the Latvian embassy. You would think that Doom would have sensors that would detect an invisible intruder by now, right? And of course Doom is there at the embassy. You know, has there ever been a world leader in the history of the world who has spent more time at one of his foreign embassies than Dr. Doom? I don't think so. Doom is there with a woman soldier of his. Her name is Zora, you know, codename Victorious. And, of course, they're standing in front of the painting that Sue needs to go to. Why doesn't she just turn around and be like, Huh, I think I'll come back later. This is a massive coincidence. Unless Doom was tipped off that Sue was coming to look for his lockbox. Just then... That big blue alien guy Buster the Wall. Also a huge coincidence that he shows up at the same time as Sue. I guess he's the one who breaks into places stealing lockboxes. Doom orders Zora Zora not to attack the alien, and then he asks Sue not to attack him either, revealing that he did know that Sue was there. Zora asks, are we just going to stand by and let it take one of your best kept secrets? And the alien goes over to collect the item in the lockbox. And then Doom says, I deny you your prize. And he blows up the thing in the lockbox. The alien tells his helmsman, "He, he, he destroyed it. And the helmsman replies, if it was destructible, it couldn't possibly have been what we're looking for. And he tells him to leave. And so the alien flies up out of the building. I guess we'll never find out what was in that box. It was just a MacGuffin, not important. At this point, Doom seems willing to work with Sue and he tells her that Reed has one of those shielded lockboxes that the aliens looking for too. And Sue is like, no he doesn't, we don't keep secrets from each other. And then Doom asks if Reed knows about the secret missions that she does for S.H.I.E.L.D. And he's got a point. So Sue calls up Reed and asks if he's got such a thing that the alien could use to blow up earth and Reed is like not earth and the implication is that it could be used to blow up more than the earth like the entire universe. Reed says he'll assemble the team. So the team gets together and Reed says no kids except for Franklin I like the sound of that and they fly off towards the Baxter building oh, I forgot the Baxter building exists. Why are they not living there? What other Marvel comic is using the Baxter building that the Fantastic Four can't live there? So they call the Fantastics, who are living there. The team is in the middle of a meeting discussing the low sales of their action figure line. Reed calls them up, yells that they're in great danger and need to get out of the building right away. What about the other people in the building? Oops, too late. We're back where we started at the beginning of the issue with the alien guy blowing up the building and killing the Fantastics, apparently. Reed is like, maybe they survived. And Doom is like, none of that is important now. Truer words have never been spoken. Back at Fantastic Four headquarters, Valeria is checking on the contents of Container Zero, which is I assume the stealthy lockbox, or perhaps a refrigerator full of Coke Zero, And suddenly she's like, whoa, dad, what did you do? I'm not sure what she means there. Back at the Baxter building, the Fantastic Four and Doom are looking at the smoldering crater in the ground. Ah, so the Baxter building has been destroyed. For what, the third time? Once again, more proof that the secret headquarters is the way to go when you're super heroing. Ben sees the alien, approaches him, and the alien smacks him so hard he goes flying through the air and through a nearby building. Reed and Doom both agree that the best way to fight this alien is with Franklin and his powers, whatever they are. So Franklin attacks the alien guy and he says it's in time as he hits the alien with cosmic energy stuff. The adults are talking about Franklin and Doom says, he's magnificent, which is such a creepy way to describe a teenage boy. So Franklin uses up all his energy, and the blue, the big blue alien guy is standing there, and he says to Franklin, You have my respect. I will remember you always. Sue puts up a force field as the alien attacks, and we see the FF along with Dr. Doom, Zora, and the Fantastics. They survived, why? They attack at the same time, while Reed tells Franklin to go run somewhere safe. On the next page, Valeria needs to drive somewhere, but Alicia won't let her drive the Fantastic Car because she's too young. And Alicia ain't such a good driver herself. So Valeria summons up a holographic driver, the She-Hulk, in her classic FF uniform. More on She-Hulk later in this podcast. So Valeria drives off with a holographic She-Hulk, and Alicia's like, but it's a school night. I have a feeling, if the aliens destroyed the universe, school will be canceled. Even though the president will be like, Yeah, I know the universe has been destroyed, but we still need to open the schools. Franklin, meanwhile, has an idea of going to the X-Men for help. He runs to the Arch in Washington Square Park, the one that should teleport him to Krakoa Island, but it doesn't work for him anymore. Back with the FF, the blue alien, still no name on that guy, is beating the shit out of everyone. Ben asked Reed why he left that lockbox container back at the Baxter Building And Reed says it's because he literally can't move it. Or it's, what is it, Thor's hammer? Or my mama's ass? So the alien finds the box. Reed yells at him not to open it. Then tells Sue to turn it invisible so the alien can't see what's inside. But it's too late. The alien opens the box and unleashes the Zero Force. Doom says it's a source of pre-primordial power, an energy that predates our very existence and Doom is pissed off that Reed discovered it before him. Well, what the hell was in Doom's magic box? Or in all the other lockboxes that the alien's been going after? Surprisingly, the alien's like, uh, this isn't what we were looking for, and he leaves. He leaves! He wasn't looking for the Zero Force? What was he looking for? The alien doesn't seem to care that the Zero Force is the power to destroy one universe and create a new one. And that's what Reed says is happening now. And they have 38 seconds before it consumes Manhattan. So Doom and Reed don't have much time to save the universe. But they don't have to. Of course, the kids show up and save the day. This comic book sucks. I really hate how the kids keep showing up, dumb dumb Reed Richards, and now dumb dumb Dr. Doom. They bring this device, the telepod, which is that big teleporter, and they suck all the energy into the telepod to power the telepod, which they were having trouble earlier powering up the telepod. So they kill two birds with one stone by getting rid of all that energy. So now, they have this telepod device, which can teleport them anywhere in the universe, which would be a great thing to have during a pandemic. I'm afraid to fly on a plane. I just know I'd end up on a flight full of maskless, Trump-loving Karens. So Doom orders his servant, Victorious, to stay behind in New York, rebuild the embassy, and watch over this teleportation thing. Reed reclaims the Baxter Building, now the Baxter Crater, and asks the Fantastics to watch over the telepod sometimes. They end up calling it the Forever Gate, and Reed and Sue end up taking the first watch over this thing. So it's just sitting there out in the open in New York where any old person can use it, and God forbid Reed let common people use any of his fantastic inventions. Sue's asking him how long he's kept this Zero Force a secret, and he asks her how long she's been keeping her spy work with S.H.I.E.L.D. secret. And then she asks about the secret Illuminati club he was in, and he asks her about the, okay, I think she has less secrets than him. Next we see Ben telling Alicia He has to go take a turn watching the Forever Gate. I guess this makes the FF the Guardians of the Forever Gate. And we see Valeria working on a math equation her dad is too stupid to solve. And then we see Franklin in his room with all his rock and roll posters torn down. I guess he realized that a kid his age shouldn't be listening to rock music, but bad music like the rest of the kids his age. And that is the end of the story. What a weird turn that was. We learned that he loves mutant rock and suddenly he doesn't love mutant rock for reasons that I'm not exactly sure of. What is that all about? We didn't learn about the blue alien creature. We didn't learn what he was up to or even his name. We didn't, we didn't learn what he was looking for and what was in those other lockboxes. This is a very elaborate setup to give the FF a powerful teleporter, right? Which frankly I'm surprised they didn't have one already. They have a friggin time machine which they stole from Dr. Doom. But do they still have that? So this takes us to a backup story called Sight Unseen, with art by Paco Medina. So back up on the blue area of the moon, Uatu the Watcher is returned. Uatu sees his beautiful moon home has been destroyed. The guy who killed him is there, some old bald guy in these black robes. Uatu calls him Nicholas Joseph Fury Sr., what? Is that what happened to Nick Fury? He became the Watcher? Oh my god. By the way, whatever whatever happened to the Watcher took place in some crossover thing outside the pages of the FF, so I have no idea what that is all about. Watcher touches Nick Fury's mind, and he's able to see everything that has transpired since he was gone. Ooh, boy, is he going to be horrified when he finds out about that Fantastic Four movie, Fant-Four-Stick. So the two of them are in this thing called the Cyclopedia Universum, where they can see everything that's happened. Fury calls Uatu a melon-headed freak, that's funny. He's got this cloak and all these chains, who does he think he is, Spawn? We start with the last thing Uatu remembers, getting shot in the face by Nick Fury. That melon head makes a very tempting target. Fury was then punished by three other members of the Watchers, they fused Fury with what was left of Uatu and he became the Unseen. Huh, I didn't see that. Uatu goes over some of the good things Fury did as the new Watcher, such as helping Thor, helping Silver Surfer, and other stuff. As Uatu watches all this shit, he says, The humans of this sector, and all the wondrous, heroic, and terrifying things they do, I swear I will never tire of watching them." Sounds like me scrolling through that crazy shit I see on TikTok. So now, Uatu says he's interested in these Kotati weapons, which we learned were not Kotati weapons, but they're older than even the Watchers themselves. Uwatu gives some cryptic shit about a Reckoning is coming, and he decides to make Nick Fury his herald. You know, like Galactus has a herald? Nick Fury is the herald of Uatu the Watcher. Really? What, he can't get Uber Eats on the moon? No DoorDash? Now, go get me takeout from Red Lobster. I'm hungry. Oh, poor Nick Fury. Former director of S.H.I.E.L.D., played by Samuel L. Jackson and David Hasselhoff. Now he's relegated to being a the personal servant of the Watcher. At least he has his eye patch back and a blue uniform. He looks more like Nick Fury, still with no hair, and he's like, "Wahoo!" So the issue ends with a one-page thing called Fantastic Forum, with art by Will Robson. Here, the Fantastic Four are telling us about their new uniforms, and they have these wrist communicators. Does this mean they'll—they're no longer going to be using those uh, flare guns? Valeria points out they can make emojis on their communicators, called Fogies, and they can use the communicators to keep track of each other, even when invisible. Ben gets a message on his that says, Dear Thing, You Suck, The Yancy Street Gang. That's a pretty lame ass mean tweet if you ask me. And that leads us into the second page of the Fantastic Forum which is, a uh, Reader Mail, which. I used to love me some letter pages when I was younger, now I can't be bothered to read them like ever. And that is the end of the big 25th issue special, appropriate for it to to come on my 10th anniversary podcast special. On a scale of 1 to 4, I give this a 2.0. Like most issues, it's like, okay, I feel like a broken record. I do like the art by R.B. Silva, it looks great. And the cover by Marco Niñez is the best one yet for volume 6, which has seen some very ugly ass covers. I wish they had told us more about that alien guy that's coming to earth and looking for stuff. What's his deal? And the mysterious lockboxes boxes all over earth, what's up with those? Does, why does Reed have one? Why does Doom have one? Who else had one? Why? And then the day is saved again by the kids. Always a pet peeve of mine. Now that I think about it, I give this issue a 1. Fuck effing kids. By the way, how does Nick Fury Jr. also have an eye patch? What are the odds? I go for years and years and years without ever seeing anyone with an eye patch. And here's a father and a son both with eye patches. It's quite a coincidence, don't you think? So it's time to move on to the first of our two items from the Fantastic Wheel of Doom. Of course, I had to use my favorite song in this anniversary special. So, welcome to episode 660, part 2. Today, it's Marvel 2-in-1, number 31, cover dated September 1977. Sweetheart, my killer, by Marv Wolfman and Ron Wilson. So we pick up the story where they left off at the end of the last issue. This is part of a two-part, three-part, maybe, story? Last issue guest starred Spider-Woman, and this issue starts with Spider-Woman underwater. Looks like they were in London, and Spider-Woman fell off Big Ben into the river. Yeah, that could happen. Ben has dived in to save her because she's a woman, and he's a rock monster. Who do you think is the better swimmer? The thing thinks to himself, The spider broad looks dead, but she can't be, cause only she knows where Alicia is. So Ben grabs her and resurfaces, and finds a boat up there with Hydra agents in their green jumpsuits, shooting guns at him. One of them says, Oh look, Grim survived that mysterious explosion. And the other says, We have our orders. We are to slay them both. Hydra sent us to destroy them both. I'm assuming they're both local British Hydra agents. And that's a lot for them to say while on a speedboat, by the way, going down the river very quickly, shooting rifles at a rock monster, swimming with a spider broad in his arms. Ben grabs the boat and smashes it up against the wall of the river, and the boat explodes, and I assume that all the Hydra Hydra agents on board are killed. Which is very unusual for anyone in the Fantastic Four to just straight-up kill people like that. On the bank of the river, Spider-Woman wakes up, and Ben threatens to rearrange her face. What he needs to do is rearrange her costume. Oh, that's an ugly, ugly costume. This is one of her first appearances, and she still has her hair covered up. So it's just his kind of round, red-colored head. Looks like a kickball. She says she's starting to remember what happened. She was a secret agent with S.H.I.E.L.D. With a mysterious past that she could not remember. It's like a real born Identity shit. She left S.H.I.E.L.D. to go find herself, and then we see her walking through a field, and then getting shot by a plane. How did she survive getting shot by a plane? It was a Hydra plane, by the way. A plane belonging to Hydra. And then she was hypnotized, and believing she was a Hydra agent, I guess she was Hydratized, and then, believing she was a Hydra agent, ordered to kill the thing and take Alicia Masters away for a secret experiment. Why the hell would Hydra want Alicia Masters for a secret experiment unless they want to figure out how a blind woman can make such detailed statues, but she can't remember where Alicia is now. And across London at a small, poorly lit flat, which is what it says, that's how it's described, we got two guys going over a map of the city. We learn they've been setting off bombs all over the city to distract from the search of some kind of, for some kind of treasure. His plan is this, and I quote, Since we have just blasted Big Ben, Scotland Yard won't think they'll strike there again. They'll take their forces away, leaving Parliament open for our true purposes and the incredible fortune which awaits up there. I'm pretty sure if they set off a bomb at Big Ben, the entire area will be swarming with cops for weeks and weeks. He's operating under some very twisted logic here. The guy goes on to tell a story about a Nazi agent sneaking into London in 1941 during the German bombing of the city and stealing stealing a box of treasure, but he had to hide it and come back later, so he buried it in a hole at the British Parliament which is a strange place to hide a stolen treasure. Soon after, Parliament was bombed, and he was unable to come back and get the treasure. And the Nazi guy made a very complicated map, separated into five pieces, that would have to be found and put together in order to find the treasure. And, oh, in a not-so-shocking revelation, one of these two guys is Heinrich Buhrer, the guy who originally hid the treasure but then again you probably knew that based on my flawless German accent. Back in the secret lair of the local Hydra agents, they have Alicia locked up as prisoner and the lead Hydra guy reveals his plan. Everyone has a plan. His plan, he waves his test tube around containing a special serum developed to create an army of invincible warriors. These Hydra agents want to take it and use their powers to become rulers of the world. But first, they want to test it on Alicia. Wait, why would they go out of their way to kidnap Alicia for this purpose? And what if the potion works and Alicia becomes a super soldier and turns around and kicks their asses? I guess they're counting that she won't get her sight back and won't be able to find their asses to kick. Back with Ben and Spider Woman, they arrive at Hydra Base Well, you know, just not the right Hydra base where Alicia's being kept. Spider-Woman doesn't know where that is. Ben has a hissy fit and tears up the floor, saying, I'll find her, I swear. Even if I have to rip apart all of Great Britain, so help me, I'll get back my gal. He continues to tear up the place for another page, and Spider-Woman promises to help him find her, and they move on outside, where they're attacked by some spider broad. It's a feral woman with fangs and eight spindly spider legs. She's the creepy spider woman. Ben recognizes her as Alicia, even though she has brown hair and looks nothing like Alicia. I actually just looked ahead in the story, and it is Alicia. Not Alicia's most dignified moment, by the way. She's been programmed to do what? Oh, kill Ben Grimm, of course. Like, she could actually do that. She's got something on her forehead, obviously used by Hydra to control her, And she's like, kill, 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 and she attacks her boyfriend. Spider-Woman says, watch out for her stingers, they're poisonous. How does she know that? Did she get stabbed? You know, Ben is not happy that his girlfriend has been turned into a monster. What a hypocrite. He's a monster. So Spider-Alicia attacks Spider-Jessica, Spider-Woman, and manhandles her, or I guess Lady handles her, or Spiderleg handles her, and she passes out. Ben tries to grab Alicia, but she flips him over and into a wall. Ben is torn. He can't fight his own girlfriend. He says, Underneath all that body gook is my Alicia. She's still my Alicia, blast it. She picks him up again and tosses him into a truck. By the way, I guess Alicia is the mysterious menace mentioned on the cover of this issue. Ben really should just grab that thing off her forehead. Next Alicia grabs onto the back of the truck with Ben, and then confusingly the truck rams into a department store? Not sure why. A cop yells out, CLEAR THE STREET! HURRY OUT! MOVE IT! I SAID, I WANT THIS BLOODY STREET CLEARED! We know he's British because he used the word bloody. Meanwhile, in the chaos that one former Nazi enters Parliament and goes to search for the treasure. He and his partner head down some stairs, come across a guard and shoot him dead. They get to a stone floor, They use a laser torch, open it up and find a treasure chest inside. Meanwhile, Spider-Woman wakes up and says to herself that the serum that Alicia took could very well kill her. And in the department store, Ben Grimm is trying to hold up a column to keep the roof from caving in and trying to save civilians Whilst Spider Alicia comes back, spins a big web, wraps her hairy legs around Ben, and is like, "Die, Grim! Die, Grim! Die, Grim!" And that is the end of the issue. Oh, what happens next? We'll never know, unless Marvel Two and One comes up on the wheel again, and somehow the random number generator gives us issue 32. Well, suffice to say, I think Ben and Alicia both survive. Actually, flipping over to the next issue, the Invisible Girl shows up to help. They basically fight with Alicia for the entirety of next issue, and on the last page, some scientist cures her. Now, the thing I find interesting is that the former Nazi looking for treasure, what exactly does he have to do with this story? Seemingly nothing. In the next issue, he and his buddy open up the treasure chest, and they're like, What? Oh Lord! And whatever magic is inside the chest, destroys them both, and the chest closes up by itself when it's done killing those men. This scene was literally ripped off and used in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Gee, who knew that Marvel 2-in-1 issue 32 was so influential? And so that is the end of part two, bringing us to part three of this podcast, which is my ultimate ranking of all the replacement members of the Fantastic Four. As I mentioned last episode, I'm not counting Iceman, I'm also not counting the so-called new Fantastic Four of Hulk, Wolverine and Ghost Rider, but I will count Spider-Man since he really did replace the Human Torch for a year or two. I'm not counting Franklin and Valeria, but if I did, they would be last. I'm not counting people who hung out with the group like Frankie Ray or Wyatt Wingfoot. Namorita is listed as a member for one mission in Volume 3, I'm not counting her I don't even remember that! I'm also not counting Flux, from a comic I've never read, or Miss Thing, a character from Volume 4. That leaves me with 9 members that I feel were actual, real members of the Fantastic Four. Even though Number 9 is a bit iffy, but he was listed as a member in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, Deluxe Edition, so I feel like I can't omit him. And that is, we'll start with Number 9 and that is Power Man, Luke Cage. So he joined in Fantastic Four, 168. This was a really off-the-wall, out-of-left-field replacement member, the third replacement member ever, and the first replacement for The Thing. This happened in the 1970s when Ben had reverted to being a human for a time, but it was only for three issues, which is the shortest on this list, which is why I, I put it at number nine. Luke Cage and the Fantastic Four are like oil and water. It is by far the strangest combination on this list, and the one who feels uh, the least like a member of the family. It's disappointing that it lasted so little time because it would have been interesting to see it last a little longer. I feel like there's a lot of potential in, in Luke Cage's tenure with the team. It was really just a gimmick and a tease. Ben quickly came back with a thing exoskeleton and Luke was off the team. If they ever need another replacement, I would like to see him come back for a real tenure on the team. Number eight is Spider Man, who joined in FF1, the Future Foundation book, and for a year or two when Johnny was dead or lost in the negative zone. You know, I just don't like Spider Man in team books. And this was a Spider Man from uh, not long after One More Day, so I don't have any connection with this new Spider Man. Plus, the white costume he was wearing during during this time was one of the ugliest superhero outfits ever. Plus, Spider-Man has a friendship with Johnny, but Johnny's not in these issues. Spider-Man doesn't have much of a relationship with Ben, Sue, or Reed, so his presence in the FF adds nothing to the book. Now that I think about it, this is the only person on the list that I wish was not on the Fantastic Four ever, and I never want to see him on the team again. Number 7. And so far, it is not the she thing. Yes, number seven is Medusa, who replaced Sue in issue 132 when Reed and Sue were having a difficult time in their marriage. And I really don't have any complaints about Medusa. It was interesting that she started as an FF villain, member of the Frightful Four, but her error with the FF 1973 74 <clears throat> is pretty unremarkable. She's fine, she's okay. Kind of like Spider-Man, she doesn't really have any relationships with anyone on the team, other than being the sister of Johnny's ex-girlfriend, which really isn't a source of conflict or anything. Six and seven on the list are like, meh, members. Number six is joining in issue 543, it's Storm. One thing that she has going for her that Medusa doesn't is that I really like the issues that she's in by Dwayne McDuffie and Paul Pelletier, And she did have a relationship with someone on the team, her husband at the time, Black Panther. By the way, her marriage with Black Panther, what was up with that? They're both black, they're both from Africa, they should be married, someone thought. Not the best idea. And when I think of the X-Men, I think of Wolverine, Cyclops, and Storm first. But seeing Storm on the Fantastic Four just, it seems wrong. Still, good issues, middle-of-the-road replacement member. Number five, Crystal, first joined in issue 81 in the late 60s, the first replacement member, and she came back for a second tour of duty in the 1980s. She's the only one to serve twice. And surely she must have logged more issues as a member of the FF than anyone else on the list. I think. You know, she kind of established the idea that the replacement member on the team should have some kind of pre-existing relationship with someone on the team. In this case, she was Johnny's girlfriend. It also helps that her first tenure on the was part of the uh, classic Stanley Jack Kirby run, and her second tenure was part of the notoriously awful Steve Englehart run. More on that later. Number four, Ant-Man Scott Lang. Who knew that one day Scott Lang of all people would have a big budget movie trilogy? I mean, Scott Lang's been in a couple of good movies and a couple of really great movies. The Fantastic Four themselves have been in. Uh, Zero good movies. But overall, I, probably more than the average reader, kind of like those Tom DeFalco, Paul Ryan issues of the 90s. And Scott made for a good replacement for Reed. He could be there as the science guy, which they needed. But he wasn't an authority figure type, allowing Sue to take the reins as the FF's leader. His only drawback is that he didn't have any kind of relationship or friendship with anyone on the team. He was kind of an outsider. Number three. And finally... Shockingly surprising even myself, I've thought this over for many hours, many days, okay, maybe just a few minutes, but Sharon Ventura, who joined in issue 306, Miss Marvel. The she-thing is classic. Those issues themselves were so bad, but not because of the she-thing. She brought the craziness and the drama like no other replacement member of the Fantastic Four ever has. She was like the entire cast of MTV's The Challenge rolled up into one comic book character. Just one of the most insane, off-the-wall characters ever. Disney would never allow any of this in the Fantastic Four now. None of it. And the crazy thing is, she stayed in this book for like 50 issues. Even after Crystal left, Steve Englehart left, Reed and Sue returned, she stayed for the entire Walt Simonson run. Issue 354. That is the most impressive run for any of the characters on this list. She could easily be number one if the next two characters on the list weren't so great. Number two, it's Black Panther. Joined in issue 543, along with his wife, Storm. As I already said, I love the, the run here by Dwayne McDuffie and Paul Pelletier. It's a shame they were kicked off to make room for the underwhelming Millar-Hitch run. But if you're going to have Reed, and Reed Richards leave the team and you need a replacement, who better than Black Panther? He's super smart, he's a good leader, and he's a Fantastic Four character too, first appearing in issue 52. I wouldn't mind seeing him join the team again sometime. You know, I'm surprised it has been so long since they've had a replacement member on the, on the team. I feel like now, if someone left the team, they would just promote Franklin or Valeria or someone, and that's no fun. You know, the Fantastic Four are unlike any other superhero team in that they are a family, and unlike other teams, the Avengers, X-Men, Justice League, or whatever, the Fantastic Four will always be four very specific characters, Reed, Sue, Ben, and Johnny. And any replacements are always temporary. But because of the specific dynamics of the group, it is fun, from time to time, to see another person or two join the group to shake things up for a year or two. But no one shook up and changed the dynamics of the group better than my number one pick. Obviously, it's the She-Hulk, joining in issue 265. First of all, she was a very lame character before John Byrne got his mitts on her. So taking her and putting her on the FF was a pretty daring act to begin with. No other character has gotten the creative boost from being in the Fantastic Four that the She-Hulk got. She was great, funny, entertaining. Byrne paired her up with Wyatt Wingfoot long-time FF associate and friend of Johnny to preserve the kind of family feel of the book. And the FF went through some very serious shit during those years. Things like Sue's miscarriage and the hate monger stuff. And Byrne did a great job of showing her as an awkward outsider at various times with personal shit that was going on. I could go on and on about how much I love the She-Hulk and how much I love those issues of the FF with her in them. Probably some of my favorite issues. So that's my favorite... That's my favorite replacement member, number one, She-Hulk. Probably a very common choice, uncontroversial, unlike putting She-Thing at number three. So that's it for my list. Time to take a new spin on the Fantastic Wheel of Doom. And here's what we have on the wheel now. Number one, issues one and two of Fantastic Four World's Greatest Comic Magazine, which is a 12-issue mini-series from 2001 and 2002. Number two, Fantastic Four Secret Invasion issues one, two, and three. Number three, issues five and six of Super-Villain Team-Up. Number four, Challengers of the Fantastic, a Marvel DC Amalgam book from 1997. Number five, from 1999, another Marvel DC special, Fantastic Four Superman. Number six, Fantastic Four X-Men issues one and two from 1987. Number seven, something I call issue 44. I'll be doing a random 44th issue of any comic book in my collection. Number 8, Episode 1 of the Fantastic Four radio show from the early 70s featuring the voices of Stan Lee and Bill Murray. Number 9, Marvel 2-in-1 random issue, just like I did last time. Uh, number 10, Fantastic Four random issue. If I land on this, I'll pick a random issue with the Fantastic Four. And number 11, I need to add a new ranking to this list, but it's hard to remember what kind of rankings I've done so far. I know I did the attractive villains. I did the replacement members. I know I did a ranking of covers. What else did I do? I have this all written down. I'll have a look. I did a ranking of all the Lee and Kirby issues in, in Special Episode 8. That sounds like a lot of work. How about a ranking of my favorite episodes of the podcast? In 2016, I made a note of all my favorites. I wrote down episode 63, 248, 264, 267, 311, and the first Christmas special. Okay, I just revealed my list. I can't put it on the wheel now. Okay, I have another idea. I'll do a ranking of all the Fantastic Four annuals. There's probably something like 30 of them. So that's what I'll do if this comes up on the wheel. Ranking the annuals. And number 12. For this, it's the last Fantastic Four story. From 2007. By Stan Lee and John Romita Jr. If I land on this, it'll be the last Fantastic Four story I ever do on this podcast. Meaning, this podcast will come to an end. So now, the time has come. Our big wheel spin. I would love the irony if last Fantastic Four comes up on the wheel on the 10th anniversary special so here we go okay so it's going it's going we've got FS secret invasion super villain a fantastic radio fantastic radio marvel 2 and one fantastic four random issue and oh it's the last fantastic four story So that's it. Not a hoax. Not a dream. Next episode, it'll be Fantastic Four 26 and the last Fantastic Four story. The last Fantastic Four cast episode. And honest to God, this was a completely random wheel spin. What a 10th anniversary episode. What other podcast gets their cancellation notice during their anniversary special? This must be a first. When I first started spinning the wheel, I did say that I was giving myself one veto every year. And I figured, i probably use it when the last Fantastic Four story came up on the wheel. And so I've decided... not to use it. These Dan Slot issues have been torture. I don't really like them that much. But I don't hate them that much either, they're just not fun to talk about. And why would anyone waste their time doing a podcast on something they don't enjoy talking about? And knowing Dan Slot, he'll be riding the FF for another five years. And that does not appeal to me at all. So I'm perfectly happy with this month's spin of the wheel. Now you know why it's called the Fantastic Wheel of Doom. But now, 30 minutes later, I think I changed my mind. I do enjoy spinning the Wheel of Doom every month, and I just had an idea. Since I don't enjoy talking much about the actual FF issues themselves, instead of talking for like 15, 20 minutes about every issue in detail, I'm gonna cut it down to like five minutes at the most. Just go over the things that are interesting. No need to give a panel by panel description of the issue, Just a short synopsis in my review. And I'll put the fun stuff I enjoy on the wheel. Problem solved. With that, I have decided to use my veto, after all. I will not be doing the last Fantastic Four story next month. And I'm going to spin the wheel again. Right now. Okay, the wheel's spinning. Wheel's spinning. Slowing down. We've got, uh... Issue 44, World's Greatest, Secret Invasion, Supervillain Team-Up. And it's moving over to Challengers of the Fantastic. (laughs) So coming in the next episode, it'll be Fantastic Four number 26 and Challengers of the Fantastic. And that is the end of the 10th anniversary episode, An Emotional Roller Coaster. If, I mean, for real, I really, for a while there, I was thinking, you know what? That really is the final episode. But no, it's not. I'll keep going. Who cares? Who gives a shit? If you have any questions about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. There's a flu bug getting passed around, and it's spreading like fire through the town. There's a virus holding up inside us Everyone that I know is coming down There's an Asian influenza Infecting us all by the score And it's turning into pneumonia We must go out once more There's a full moon howling at the night And its bark is much worse than its bite So we must go out